It's from Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Thank you, Kara. I know we just prayed, but let's pray again. I know that I need it. As we come to this really difficult doctrine about hell this morning, Lord, um, just be with us, guide us, help me to speak truthfully from your word. Give us all um, ears to hear and hearts to receive um, even even a difficult teaching like this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I need to start by saying, I do not want to believe in hell. Who does? Right? In 2011, a book came out by an evangelical pastor named Rob Bell. The book was called Love Wins. A book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who has ever lived. Pretty ambitious topic. Um, One of the main points of his book was, maybe we've gotten hell wrong all these years. Maybe there is no place of eternal judgment. Maybe, in the end, God's love is bigger than all of that. Boy, that's a nice thought. I would love to believe that. Many people um, praised him for, for writing these things. He was interviewed on the Oprah Winfrey show, and um, he was praised for preaching a gentler, more inclusive faith. I would love to believe what he said is true. Um, but his book caused a real stir in the Christian world because it challenged and questioned, even, even undermined the traditional doctrine of hell which for thousands of years Christians have um, largely believed, and our statement of faith puts it this way. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell, and the just to dwell eternally in heaven. Eternal conscious punishment for obvious reasons, people have had issues with that. Rob Bell was not the first person to come along and call that into question. For thousands of years, Christians even have been saying, isn't there another way to understand this? Isn't there a loophole? Maybe hell is not quite like the Bible says it is. And Rob Bell is one of the latest questioners. Here's a quote from his book, Love Wins. 
Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite eternal torment for things they did in their few finite years of life? These are not trivial questions. These are questions we should grapple with when we think about hell. And the longer you think about them, the tougher they get. These are the kinds of questions that just can stick in your craw and even make people turn their back on, on the Bible. Um, a friend of mine I was speaking with a few months ago who knew that I'm preaching this doctrine series, she told me, honestly, I, I just can't believe in that. I can't believe in hell. I can't believe in the whole eternal conscious punishment thing. I'm sorry, I just can't do it. You may be feeling that way. Or you may have never thought about it very much and um, realize now that, uh, that it's a big deal. Well, as difficult as the doctrine of hell is, I, I do believe it. And the number one reason is because Jesus believed in hell. Jesus taught about hell more than anyone in all of the Bible. And so I want to do three things in this sermon today. I want to first look at what Jesus said about hell. Second, what he did about hell. And third, what we can do about it. What we can do in response. So what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and what we can do. Now, I have to promise you that this will be an uncomfortable sermon. It, w it was hard for me to write. And I hope it causes you to question some assumptions you've had, perhaps. I hope it raises questions that you will wrestle through on your own. But ultimately, I hope that it will fuel our growth in Christ and our zeal for the Lord and even our love for the lost. So what Jesus said about hell, number one. Well, he spoke about hell or eternal judgment more broadly in many places. Um, but we're using this passage in Mark chapter 9 as a, as a representative text, as an entryway. Partly because the word hell is in here three times in just a few verses. When you hear that word, hell, I wonder what comes to mind for you. The stereotypical image of hell is like this underground torture chamber where the devil and his minions run around cackling and poking people with pitchforks, right? Which is not what Jesus was talking about. The word he used here, <coughs> translated hell in our Bibles, is a Greek word, Gehenna. Gehenna was the name of a place, of a valley outside of Jerusalem, on the southern tip of Jerusalem. <coughs> Gehenna is the, he the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Gehinnom. It was the val called the Valley of Gehinnom. And that place had a sordid and notorious history. Um, 
at the time of Jeremiah the prophet, things were so spiritually dark in Israel that many Israelites were worshiping the pagan gods Moloch and Baal. <coughs> and part of the worship of these pagan deities was done in the valley of Gehinnom. They built altars to these gods, and on these altars they would sacrifice their own children by burning them alive. This was the kind of reputation attached with that valley. Now, when King Josiah came to power in the 7th century, he, re he reformed Israel, including desecrating all of the altars of Baal and Moloch, putting human bones on them, and furthermore, making sure that that valley could never be used for any kind of worship again. He turned it into a place um, of unclean things, a garbage dump, essentially, where you would take your dead animal carcasses and your, your toilet emptyings and your trash and you would burn it there in that valley, the valley of Gehinnom. Scholars believe that even at the time of Jesus, it was being used for that purpose. And even to this day, the valley of Gehinnom is essentially a dump, a large dump. A writer named Edwin Black actually went there uh, in 1999, he wrote an article about this in the Washington Post. He went there to write about this place. He had trouble getting there because no Jewish taxi driver would bring him near because it's such a desecrated place in their culture. But he eventually got there, and here's what he wrote. Below the old city walls in Jerusalem, there's a ravine that begins as a gentle, grassy separation between hills then quickly descends south into the rocky earth. Eventually, the ravine becomes a steep, craggy depth, scarred on its far side by shallow caves and pits pocked by hollowed-out chambers and narrow crypts. Everywhere you see scorches and smolder from trash fires. Rivulets of urine trickle down from open sewers at the cliffs above, watering thorn bushes, weeds, and unexpected clumps of grass among the outcroppings. You smell the stench of decaying offal, the congealed stink of putrefied garbage, and the absorbed reek of incinerated substances seared into the rock face. Crows circle low, worms and maggots slither throughout. Are you getting the picture of what Jesus was referring to? The, word, the name for that place was the word he chose to describe the place of eternal judgment. Not that in that literal valley people will be thrown when Jesus comes back, but the symbols are probably even more chilling, right? That's the word he chose to talk about the final destination of the damned. As I was reading many parts of the Bible this week, about hell, I found three, three things about hell that we need to understand. And, and when I looked at this passage, I realized they're all right here in this passage as well. First, hell, or this Gehenna, is the place of final exclusion. 
It's on the outside of God's kingdom. You get a sense of that by reading verses 43 and 44, where Jesus says, It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. Or, verse 44, It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Verse 47, It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Don't get hung up yet on these gory images of cutting off your hand. We'll get to that later. But do you see the contrast between entering life and entering the kingdom and being thrown into hell? Being received into the kingdom versus being cast away on the outside, excluded from all that is good. Jesus says it even more starkly in Matthew chapter 8 and other places where he says those on that day who are, who are judged will be cast into a place of outer darkness. Outer darkness. You see, hell is a place of exclusion. It's not that at the end of life there are these two doors and one's door number one that goes down to hell and one's door number two that goes up to heaven like these two equal and opposite locations. Jesus is coming back and bringing his kingdom and making all things new and bringing you know, the full, uh, his full purposes to this earth and he's going to fully uh, uh, purge everything that is sinful and evil from the world. Where does that go? Hell place of exclusion. Hell is to the kingdom of God what Gehenna the garbage dump was to the city of Jerusalem. The place of exclusion. Second, hell is a place of destruction. That becomes pretty clear in verse 48 where he says, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is lifting, quoting a verse from the prophet Isaiah, the, f- the last verse of the book of Isaiah, which pictures the final destruction of God's enemies, of the people who rebelled against God. Here's what that verse says in context. God is saying, the people in his kingdom, quote, will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, The worms that eat them do not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. These are gory images. Jarring images of destruction. Have you ever seen a house on fire? I know at least Mike Lachance has. The destructive power of fire. Have you ever come across the carcass of an animal and found worms doing what they do images of destruction of disintegration of of uh, of decomposition and that's what jesus describes hell is except in this place the fire burns but never burns up and the worm eats but never consumes it's like perpetual even eternal disintegration and destruction I wonder if it's the kind of place where 
everything about a human being will be lost and destroyed, even the very image of God somehow, until nothing is left but horror. Well, fire is also a symbol of something else. This is the third thing about hell. It's a place of punishment. It's not just that people end up there as, as a necessary, you know, being excluded, but it's a place where sin is finally and fully punished. Fire is often an image of God's wrath against sin. Now, we have a hard time thinking of God's wrath and God's punishment because it doesn't line up with our view of a loving God, of a compassionate God. But his wrath is a dimension of his holiness. When sin, when something that, that rupture, ruptures the moral fabric of his world, uh, when he comes against that, his wrath burns against that sin. That's simply part of who he is. It's not cruel. It's not that God is enjoying punishing people, but it's simply what his justice requires. He says, uh, God says in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, Do I take pleasure in any death of the wicked? Sorry, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But Jesus knows, just as God the Father knows, that people, not everyone will turn. Uh, some will go to the place of punishment for their sin. So according to Jesus, hell is a place of exclusion, of destruction, and of punishment. And the rest of the Bible only confirms and strengthens these ideas. I don't want to believe that. I don't like that idea. Um, this is personal for all of us. We have family members, friends we dearly love who we know have not trusted in Jesus, have not repented of their sin. We have people we love who have gone, who've, who've died. We, we, we have no reason to believe that they ever did trust in Jesus. And I don't want to believe that they're in a place of eternal separation from God and punishment for sin but I didn't write the Bible. I just have to go on what Jesus and what the rest of Scripture says and I have to trust in God's ultimate justice and ultimate goodness. I think, friends, we have all experienced um, foretastes of what hell might be like. If you've ever been through a deep depression so that life didn't seem worth living and just felt that deep loneliness and, and, and anguish and exclusion. If you've ever lost a child, if you've ever seen war, if you've ever suffered serious trauma, if you've ever been in the grip of an addiction that destroys your life, you kind of have a foretaste of, of what that place will be like. But there's a big difference in this life there's always hope. 
There's always the presence of God with us, comforting us. There's always the promise that God will take the bad stuff and the pain and redeem it and weave it into his good plans for our lives. And that, I think, is the worst thing about hell. There's no hope. There's no promise of redemption anymore. There's no, um, there's no presence of God to comfort only the, the horrifying awareness of God's wrath against sin. That's hard to believe. But I think if we read our Bibles and if we um, think about what we experience in life, it's true. Well, we have to read what Jesus said about this, what he said about hell with what he did about hell. They're two sides of the same coin. What did Jesus do about hell? Like every other Christian doctrine, friends, we have to understand its relationship to the cross, the cross of Christ. It all comes back to the cross. The reason Jesus went to the cross was to endure hell for us. Think about it. He suffered and died, for one, to endure God's punishing wrath against sin. He, the wrath was poured out on him. He experienced it to the full. He also faced destruction. His body was destroyed. His his mind and spirit were in anguish he was tortured his his reputation was shredded isaiah said that he was marred beyond human likeness he faced destruction and disintegration and he was excluded on the cross the very place of the crucifixion where they nailed him up to that beam was a desecrated place where executions happened frequently there was probably even a mass grave nearby where the soldiers would dump any unclaimed bodies. That's the kind of place that Jesus went to for us and died. And furthermore, he was excluded from the presence of God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. He knows exactly what that outer darkness is like because guess what? He was the first one who ever went there. That's what Jesus did about hell. That's what he did for us on the cross. Let me illustrate this by reading a short anecdote I heard. <clears throat> the story goes, A duck hunter was with a friend in the wide open land of southeastern Georgia. Far away on the horizon he noticed a cloud of smoke. Soon he could hear crackling as the wind shifted. He realized the terrible truth. A brush fire was advancing so fast they couldn't outrun it. Rifling through his pockets, he soon found what he was looking for, a book of matches. He lit a small fire around the two of them, and soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth, waiting for the fire to come. They didn't have to wait long. They covered their mouths with handkerchiefs and braced themselves. The fire came near and swept over them, but they were completely unhurt, untouched. Fire would not pass where the fire had already passed. 
That's the cross. The place where the fires of hell have already passed is on Jesus at the cross. That is our, that is our hope. That is why we can have confidence that hell is not our future for those who trust in Jesus and have repented of their sin and clung to the cross. That's what, what takes away the power of hell, the promise of hell in our lives. So knowing what Jesus said about hell and what he did about hell, what can we do? Where does that leave us? Some live as if Jesus' death on the cross cancels what he said about hell. That because he died, forgiveness is available and we have carte blanche to just do whatever we want, right? But I think we need to take Jesus' words seriously. We need to not divorce them from the cross, but put them together. So first, I want to leave you with two things. First, let's take Jesus' words about hell seriously. Now, the context of this passage was his teaching about sin and about how we should go to extreme measures to get rid of sin in our lives. Right? If your hand causes you to stumble, that is to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life with one hand than with two hands to be thrown into hell. And with the eye and with the foot. He says it three times. In other words, do whatever it takes to get rid of sin in your lives. Yes, we will always have sin with us. No, we will never be perfect. But do we take Jesus' words seriously? Do we believe that sin can actually lead to hell? Whether it's sexual immorality or pride or addiction or anger or greed or unforgiveness, whatever it is, um, do, you know, it's infinitely better to endure the pain of getting rid of that thing, pulling it out of your life, than to endure eternal anguish in hell. And the minute we think Yes, but Jesus died for me, so it doesn't really matter. That should be an alarm bell moment in your your life where you are cheapening the grace of God and you think that you deserve salvation and that, that Jesus simply forgives without any repentance, any change of life. No, the two go together. Yes, Jesus saves us completely and our obedience to him in turning from sin shows that we, that we are believers. So that's the first thing. I'm going to give you some time as we approach the Lord's Supper in a few minutes to reflect and to search your heart and see if there's any sin that should be cut out. Here's the second thing and the last thing I'll share. One way we can love others is to warn them about hell. The message of the gospel is not um, believe in Jesus or go to hell. That's n- hell is not the point, but it is part of the message. 
It's part of the message. And we don't do anyone any favors by trying to soften it or um, promise that there's no such thing as hell or make it easier to, to swallow. Let's simply share with people lovingly and wisely what the Bible says and let them make their choice about Jesus. And the fact is, every person does have to make a choice that will determine their eternal destiny. Maybe that's why hell is inevitable, because God respects people's choice. Everyone has a choice to humble themselves at the cross and receive God's grace or to go their own way. As C.S. Lewis said it, there are only two kinds of people in the world in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Right? If you want to choose to live apart from me, I respect that choice. Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it, he says. The door to hell is locked from the inside. Well, I hope, friends, that this sermon has been helpful and has been true, but also, you know, has, has helped us understand the, the hard reality of hell, but also framed it in the larger context of the gospel, that hell doesn't have to be our future. Jesus came to save us from hell, from sin and death and hell. He went through hell for us, and we can believe and we can share with others that for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray.